I will never forget my very first eye exam. Uh, I was in middle school, uh, and on the way there, my dad was prepping me on, all right, you know what, I'll be out in the waiting room, you're going to be fine, they're going to take you back, they're going to put these funky looking goggles on, and then they're going to say one or two, which is clear, and you need to take your time and, and go through it all, right? And he's telling me every step of the way, well, everything that they're going to do. So I go in there, middle school, I'm like confident, I'm like, all right, I got this, I'm, I'm good to go, Right. And I get in there, and we're going through, and all of a sudden, she's like, all right, now I need you to sit here and put your chin up, and you're going to see a light, and I need you to look at that light with nice big eyes type thing. And I was like, huh, Dad didn't tell me about this, but okay, you know, and I'm just like sitting there. And next thing I know, like 400 PSI of air just right in my eye, and I'm like, oh, my word, what was that? You know, and then I'm like tearing up and crying and everything like that, and, and then she says, Oh, that one didn't take. We had to do it again. I'm like, no, we're not. Like, we're done here, right? And then, and I'm like, oh my word. And she's like, we have to do this. And we're, and I was like, oh, this is painful. Like, and so I go out there, and I'm like, Dad. And he's like, oh yeah, I forgot. And he didn't really forget. It was more like he just didn't want to tell me because he knew the whole time I'd be like, I don't want to do this, you know. And and so, but and I was like, I was suffering, right? It was like it was painful. Anyways. Uh, but all of a sudden, then I got my glasses. And any of you that have gotten glasses or contacts or whatever, that first realization of when you put on those glasses and you look out and you're like, the trees, you can see the individual leaves. Uh, it, it's like one of those things. It's just like, I thought it was like all my little coloring pictures of you just, you know, make a big green blob. I thought that's what trees looked like. And I can actually see the individual leaves. And it was brought everything into focus. And sometimes, that's what happens. You, you, you can become blind and not realize it. I didn't realize how blind I really was. And we can lose our focus. And Scripture, what it does is, and that's why it's so important to get back into it on a daily basis, is that it helps us bring everything back into focus. It helps us stay on track. And then the thing is, just like that puff of air, it doesn't pull any punches. And sometimes it is. It's a little bit like, oh, I had that. That hit right here, you know, type thing. And, but it's for your benefit. It's for your good. And with eternity on the line, there's no room for error and sometimes pleasantries. We just have to get down to business. And Paul, in this passage that we're going to look at in 1 Timothy 5, uh, verses 3 through 16, he becomes very practical. And there's a need that has arisen, and Paul addresses that need so that the main thing stays the main thing. And it's so easy in the church to get off onto other different subject matters and to lose the heart of the matter, that we're supposed to represent the heart of God to the world. That's our main purpose. That's our main focus. And this always, we always tend to get off track when it's an election year. I mean, every two years when that comes by, I mean, I'm only 40 years old and I already dread election years I like despise them because it brings up so much division, so much. Everybody's looking to our Savior being on Capitol Hill, right? And they're all like, no, we should vote this way, we should vote this way. And it starts dividing. And I kind of sit there and I'm like, you know what? There's a lot that the government does that's good, and there's a lot that it does that it shouldn't be doing, right? And, and I've kind of just held that conviction to myself. And I'll never forget... Uh, I was watching uh, Fox News. I had it kind of playing, I think, in the background. It was Fox and Friends uh, in the morning, so I was getting ready for work or something like that. 
and they were talking about the who should, should we vote for, and the, the Republicans and Democrats, and all this kind of stuff. And a guy named Carlson Tucker, uh, he's a host on there, uh, he said this, and I just was like, oh my word, I can't believe they're saying this in public. As he said, the church is the one that is supposed to take care of the poor and destitute, not the government. All right, They were talking about how the government is just over, overburdened with all these other stuff, trying to fix issues, and it, it's not what the government's for. And the female host, though, she shot back immediately and said, but the church is not doing those things, so the government has to. And instantly, it was like that shotgun blast to my chest, just thinking, you know what? We're going to stand before God, and we're going to have to answer to that. And so oftentimes, though, that's what happens, is we would rather just give the duties off to someone else so that we can focus on what we think is important. And the question that we have to ask is, are we so focused on building our own little castle, our own little kingdoms, that we have forgotten that we're part of a larger kingdom, and we're not the king? We're not the king. We're part of a larger kingdom as Christians. And, and, and the king, he says that we get to call him father. So it's not just we uh, serve a king. We're actually a family. The church is supposed to be a family. And just like any family household, they begin to reflect the priorities and values of the father. And then we must share his focus, his values. So what are they? Well, I'm just going to do a real quick go through a bunch of different passages, just real fast, fire them off type thing. But these are just the tip of the iceberg. And I want you to see if you start catching a theme here of what is important to God. Exodus 22.22 says, You must not exploit a widow or an orphan. Deuteronomy 10.18 says, He ensures that the orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. Deuteronomy 24, 17 through 21, true justice must be given to foreigners living among you and to orphans, and you must never accept a widow's garment as security for her debt. Always remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that your Lord, your God, redeemed you from your slavery. That is why I have given you this command. When you are harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigners, the orphans, and widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. When you beat the olives from the olive trees, don't go over the boughs twice. Leave the remaining olives for the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't glean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Psalm 68, 5. Speaking of God, he's the father to the fatherless, defenders of the widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. Isaiah 1:17. Learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of the orphans, fight for the rights of widows. James 1:27. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God of the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Before I go on to this next one, we all have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Why did God wipe them off the face of the earth? Homosexuality, right? Perversion? Yes, and that is very true. But there's also, and this was, when I read this, I was like, oh my word, we really need to check ourselves. Uh, Ezekiel, it says, it says, yes, he wiped them from that, but he also said, Sodom's sins, uh, Ezekiel 16, 49 says, Sodom's sins were pride, 
gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door, on top of the homosexuality. And there's other passages that I could look to, but I think you're starting to get a theme here that God looks out for those that are in true need and all alone. He is that good father that protects the orphans and takes care of the widows. And as his people, his children should as well. But here's the dilemma. Those that are not guided by the Spirit of God will try to exploit the goodness of God. All right, I grew up in the church. My dad was the minister, and there were so many times that people would come in off the street. Hey, here's a church. We need a handout, right? And so they would go in, and they'd plead this, this case of whatever, you know, and, and hey, can you just give us some money? Can you just give us some money? And, and, and dad was like, whoa, I, don't, well, I can cake you down, and we can fill up your car. for No, 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 just give me money. That's all we really need is just give us money. And here's the thing is we have a duty as Christians to be a good steward of all things because all things are given to us from God. It's on loan from God. And all he asks for is really 10% back. And then we get the other 90% to kind of steward. That's a good deal, right? So here's the thing is being a good steward, just to say, you know what, we need to be charitable to all is not necessarily good stewardship. Now, what we'll see here in Paul says is that charitable to all in true need is what we should be striving for. We must always use discernment. God, uh, Jesus said to be uh, discerning as a, a shrewd as a serpent, right? We, all, we should use discernment and help those that are truly in need. And so many, though, have gone the other way of just saying, you know what, we just need to be charitable all. And so they've just completely jumped on board the whole social justice train uh, on the tracks of critical theory and, and driven by wokeism, uh, not realizing that it's, gonna about, it's heading off a cliff. Because social justice to the world is anything but just when you really start realizing it. They use the words like redistribution of the wealth, which is just government terminology for stealing. And, and the basis for what is just to them is in their own eyes, it's biased and, and it's partial. Uh, it, Thomas Sowell, if you ever get to read some of his stuff, amazing guy. Envy was once considered to be one of the seven deadly sins before it became one of the most admired virtues under its new name, social justice. He also said, I love this quote about activism, uh, activism is a way for using people to feel important, even if the consequences of their activism are counterproductive for those they claim to be helping and damaging to the fabric of society as a whole. He's kind of getting to this whole point that biblical justice should be justice for all, that every person be treated according to the same standards and the same respect, regardless of class, race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, or any other social category. And this is the battle that we find ourselves in with needing to hold true to God's heart, to helping others in true need, and not just giving a free handout. 
Timothy, a young minister in Ephesus, he finds a mess within the church uh, he's ministering. Paul, his mentor, writes to help him kind of figure out, all right, this is how we set it all straight. And those that are listening, because Timothy would have been reading this letter out loud to everyone, they're all hearing it as well. And Paul brings everything into focus, all right? And you're going to see that he's pretty harsh in some ways. And he brings order, though, to the chaos. We need to... And remember, the cultural context before we start reading all this is that there is the, the big religion of Artemis, the goddess of Artemis, and it was a very strong, independent, feminist movement that was coming out of that, right? And, and, but a genuine need has truly arisen, and, and to care for the widows, and this was the social justice need of their day. And just like in our day, there's going to be some that try to take advantage of that. And from this, though, we're going to learn some principles because here's the thing you need to realize is that you soon will be the leaders of the church, and so you need to have a good understanding of what we do here. All right? As leaders of the church, you need to understand this. And the, and the reason that this became such an issue uh, in the church is that there was no social programs like we have to assist the elderly, the sick, widows, or orphans. So families took care of their own, or people became destitute, and in some cases were enslaved in order to make uh, ends meet. It was especially difficult for women who lost their husbands because opportunities for work or remarriage were limited. So we see this in Acts 6, in the early part of the church, that they took care of the widows as a very practical part of putting into practice their uh, the gospel, all right? So that's where we're at. That's the background information. Let's look at this passage. 1 Timothy 5, uh, 3 through 16. I'm just going to read it all, and then we'll just hit the high points. Take care of any widow who has no one else to take care for her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show God godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. Now, a true widow, a woman who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. She prays night and day, asking God for his help. But the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead, even while she lives. Give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have died denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. A widow who is put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and has faithful to her husband. She must be well respected by everyone because of the good she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? The younger widows should not be on the list. Because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ, and they will want to remarry. Then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. And if they are on the list, they will learn to be lazy, and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business, and talking about things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger widows to marry again, have children, and take care of their own homes. Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them, for I'm afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. If a woman who is a believer has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church. Then the church can care for the widows who are truly alone. 
All right, so here in here, Paul stresses some qualifications for being considered of widows of the church. But think about while we're talking, focusing on widows, also be thinking about, all right, so how do we really cipher through on who to take care of and who when they come to the church? And the, one of the biggest things is that he stresses in verse 5 and again at the end is that now a true widow. He's not just saying somebody that's lost their husband, but a true widow. And he gives the definition of someone who is truly alone. They have no one else. They are completely dependent upon God for everything that comes. The give us today our daily bread. That is their prayer. God, I am completely dependent on you. Uh, some definition or translations say a woman indeed, a widow indeed. All right. There is no one else to help her. But when Paul says, if a widow has a family members, then they should take care of their parents. And if they don't, then they're worse than unbelievers because they know better. They know better. They know what they should be doing, and they're not doing it. So if the church is going to be supporting her, then there's, they, she should be of utmost character, is what he, uh, he says. Because by the church supporting her, they're kind of saying, hey, they're validating this, this widow. And so people would start realizing this, and they look at this, and they're looking at the character of this person, being like, Oh, they're representing the church in Christ well. So he says they need to be known for their faithfulness, that, that while their husband was still alive, they were faithful to their husband. And now they are fully devoted and dependent upon God, that they've devoted themselves to God wholeheartedly, praying to Him. Uh, he gives the thing about being over 60, all right? Uh, how he came to that, I'm not exactly sure, but that he gives his over 60. And he says that they should be known by their good deeds, and they kind of give questions about that we should answer. You know, have they brought up their children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? I Actually, the ESV actually says it has shown hospitality and has washed the feet of the saints. Now, does that mean that, you know, are you washing feet? No, it just means that the, the washing of the feet was for the lowest of servants, right? It was like the bottom of the totem pole. That's where you started as a servant, and it would be a, a sign of good uh, gesture to the, your guests when they would come over to wash their feet. And what he's getting at is, does this woman have an attitude that says any task is below her? She said, nope, that's not for me. I, I, I don't do that. Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always... Has she always been ready to do good? You know, when I hear about this, I actually think of my grandma. My grandma was an amazing woman. I think of uh, Grandma Sandy as well. And, I, and, you know, I think of these widows that I know that fit these. And, and, and Paul is giving this, and he's, he's saying, listen, these are qualifications and letting us know what we need to do. Uh, and, we need to, and he's giving us permission that we don't just need to be so quick to act, but actually stop, think, and not just give to everyone that asks. So what about the younger widows? So in speaking about the younger widows, we need to remember that as Christians, our main focus is, is that is all that we do is to follow God wholeheartedly, right? And Paul is saying here, as he says, that some of their physical desires will overpower the devotion to Christ, all right? Basically what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit's powerful, but so are hormones, all right, and there's something there that we, as Christians, we're walking by the Holy Spirit. We should we're learning to give more and more and walk and more and more by the Holy Spirit. But God has given the companionship of marriage to help rein in some of those hormones. All right, to keep the focus, and the focus is for both the husband and wife to be fully focused on God and His mission. Now, these younger widows, they were declaring to be fully devoted to God, 
uh, some say that they, they, like alluded to in the text, gave a pledge to remain single, but then they get lonely, right? And then, you know, Mr. Smith moves into town. And, and they start hanging around with Mr. Smith more, you know, having coffee and, and, and doing, you know, what, whatever old people do. Uh, you know, they, they're doing that kind of thing. And then they're like, you know, he's so charming. He's so nice. And next thing you know, off they go, right? They're, they're remarrying. And so this vow that they said, you know what? Uh, my one husband, he's dead. He's gone. I'm going to devote myself fully to God now. And then until... Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones comes by. And so Paul's saying, hey, listen, at this younger age, it's actually probably better just go ahead and just remarry, right? Instead of, because what would end up happening is that they're still young, they're still youthful, they can still do, be doing a lot, but without family to care for, and if the church supports them, there's no reason for them to work, they're going to get themselves in a lot of trouble. Uh, and if it's most time with their mouth. We see the same principle, though, with the guys, King David, right? Think of King David with the whole big sin of Bathsheba, and, and, and then he killed Uriah and everything to kind of cover up that he had impregnated and got uh, Bathsheba. He, he, it all started, and it says the very first thing, that while all the other kings went to war, David stayed back. And we see this principle of that if we don't keep that higher focus and our mission at the forefront, then we're going to end up falling away, and we're going to end up following our own sinful desires. And as we do that, as he says here, many of the widows and younger ladies had followed the false teachers, and thus they're following Satan. Because if you're not following God, you're following Satan. All right, now we're going to... I'm going to... We've talked about this, and we're going to continue with this because there's a lot of parallels between this and 1 Corinthians 7. And I'm going to make a jump here from talking about, we've talked about widows, but a widow is someone that's single, right? And so I'm just, we're going to talk about singleness just really, really fast. And I want you to realize that being single is actually a gift. It's a gift from God. It is not something like to be, uh, to to run away from. It's not something that, you know, society says, oh, you're incomplete until you're married, until you have... No, singleness is a gift from God, and it should be leveraged for God. First uh, Corinthians 7, big passage. I'm going to read through it, and we're going to hit some high points, and then we'll be done. First Corinthians 7, starting in verse 7. He, uh, Paul's addressing this whole thing about, should I marry, should I not marry, blah, blah, blah. He says, listen, I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried, just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. And verse, jumping down to verse 25. Now, uh, regarding your question about the young women who are not yet married, I do not have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in His mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted, and I will share it with you. Because of the present crisis, I think it is best for, to remain as you are. If you are a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it is not a sin. Whew. All right. And if a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles, and I'm trying to spare you of these problems. But let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. 
Those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Those who use the things of this world should not become attached to them, for this world as we know it will soon pass away. Here's the whole crux of the matter. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in uh, body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husbands. Here's the whole point right here. Verse 35, I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but only only if he loves the Lord. But in my opinion, it would be better for her to stay single, and I think I am giving you counsel from God's Spirit when I say this. All right, I know that's a that's that's abbreviated. That chapter is actually huge, but I kind of cut out the main points talking about singleness just to let you know that being single it's actually a gift from God, and it should be embraced by God. And so many times we focus more on I got to find the right spouse, I got to find the right spouse, blah blah. blah. And what we need to focus on is God and His mission and. Uh, we're just going to get really practical here. All right, just uh, consider this a dad to child moment. Is those that have followed this advice that I'm about to give you, it's worked out very well. Uh, so oftentimes we try to focus on trying to find that right spouse, right? And so we we cater to fit that person. We think we found the right person, so we start recognizing, okay, they dress a certain way. So we start dressing somewhat similar to them, you know, and to draw attention, oh, they're into this thing. So we start getting into those kind of hobbies, and then and and we start recognizing what they laugh at, the movies that they watch, and we start catering to type that type thing. I want you to picture you're kind of running a trail, all right? And, and you, on this trail, uh, there, you're in this park, and there's all these trails going all, all over the way. There's some that go up, there's some that go down, and all this kind of stuff, and everybody's running this trail. And what we need to be doing is we need to just focus on the trail that God has set upon us, and that we're the trail that he has said, hey, this is, this is your path. And we run that full wholeheartedly. All right, we, we, we are focused on that. We're focused on God. We're focused on what he wants us to do. And, and then as we're going at that pace, at this pace that His Spirit is leading us and everything like that, all of a sudden there's going to become this day when you realize that somebody else's path has kind of merged onto yours and you look beside you and, huh, look at that. They're going down the same path and we're going at the same pace. We're equally like yoked, is what the Bible says. We're equally with, with each other and, and following God and, and they're, they're not just a new Christian and 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 we're at the same pace, right? And then that's when you know that God has brought the right person in your life. But we've, it starts with focusing on God's kingdom, and He will bring the right person at the right time that will enable you to do more for His kingdom together than apart. That's the whole point of what Paul's saying here is like, listen, 
The whole point is to focus on the kingdom and advancement of the kingdom. And, and if you're going to get involved and, and married with someone, then it should help multiply your efforts. The right one should multiply your work for the kingdom, not divide it. And church, the God's people, we can't lose this focus. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. We have to keep the heart of God the main thing. And what is it all about? It's all about Jesus and making sure that everyone knows him. And how we treat each other, especially those in our own uh, house, in our own church, will impact our witness to others. And so we have to keep the heart of God, and what breaks his heart should break ours. And the more time that we're spending in with him, we're going to get more in line with that. And it's not going to be sit well with us to see the mistreatment of widows and orphans, especially those in our midst. And as people look on, they're going to start noticing. And they don't really care what we have to say until they know that we care. And sometimes them watching us and seeing how we treat one another and how we care for one another is the biggest testimony and the biggest sermon that they'll ever hear. But right now, what I want... I know there's so much in your dreams and and future and all that kind of thing, but if I can implore you right now at your age, leverage everything you have for God's kingdom, for Him, for, for letting others know Him. Leverage everything, just saying, you know what? I'm not going to worry about what spouse and everything like that anymore. I'm going to focus on God, and God, I'm going to follow you wholeheartedly. You are going to be my number one, my ride or die, right? And, and I can t- guarantee you this, that you will not be disappointed when you stand before him and you see him in all of his glory, all of his power, you will recognize that you made the best decision.